from children ages uh, three to second grade in children's church. <clears throat> the following comes from an announcement for a series of sermons on hamlinechurch.org. It says this, in every home, in every life, there exist certain problems, certain realities that we don't want to acknowledge. We think that if we ignore them for long enough, they will go away on their own or no one will notice. We all struggle with how to deal with the elephant in the room. Oftentimes we feel that we have to keep these elephants secret and tell everyone that we're fine. If we have to act like something we are not, it's problematic. Chances are the very thing you don't want to talk about is probably the very thing that is nudging you out of a relationship with an important person in your life or with God. There are certain elephants that exist in our lives that need to be brought into the light of God's love and God's community of believers, the church. One of these elephants is loneliness. We live in a culture that celebrates individualism and self-reliance. And yet we humans are an exquisitely social species, thriving in good, com in good company and suffering in isolation. We have more technology than ever to help us stay connected Yet somehow the devices fail us. And the elephant in the room is that we feel increasingly alone. God meant for us to be in community. We need each other. It's important that we talk about the elephant in the room and offer people ways to overcome loneliness and enter into genuine, authentic, and life-giving relationships. Another elephant is addiction. You know, addiction comes in many forms. Overeating, social media, pornography alcoholism, television, tobacco, drugs, and more. However, addiction is often birthed from one source, pain. And despite our best efforts to hide the elephant, eventually the side effects of addiction spill over into other aspects of our lives. It can end up hurting the people we love the most. These addictions can hold us back from a fullness of life that God intends for all of us, we can open the door to recovery, both for those addicted and their loved ones, by sharing our experiences, strengths, and hopes with one another. We can become willing to accept God's grace in solving our lives' problems and healing our hearts. You know, this morning we're going to be talking about an elephant in the room for Jacob. This elephant is a person. It's his brother Esau. Twenty years before, Jacob stole Esau's blessing from their father, and when Esau found out, he vowed to kill Jacob. Jacob's mother, Rachel, convinced Isaac to send him away to his uncle Laban's house and family in order to put some distance between the brothers and for Jacob to find a wife. We can only wonder how much time Jacob spent thinking about the elephant in the room while he was away. You know, he certainly had other things to worry about as he and Laban schemed back and forth most of the time. But now that he was at peace with Laban, and on his way back to Canaan, the elephant in the room rears its ugly head. And we'll see that it causes Jacob to prepare, to panic, to pray, to plot, and to placate. The elephant in the room causes Jacob to be in great fear and distress, which causes him to not completely trust God to protect him. You know, even though God has provided and protected him for the past 20 years, and he just recently was rescued from harm by Laban's hand, Jacob is still full of doubt and still fearful. 
But you know, we can also see Jacob making great strides in his spiritual maturity as he prepares to reconcile with Esau, as he prays to God for deliverance based on the promises that God has made to him. For every step backward he takes, he seems to take two steps forward. And then his, we'll see that his prayer is a model for us when our enemies are closing in and we are doubtful, when we are fearful, when we are desperate to be delivered from their hand. And that brings us to our big idea this morning, which is when we are experiencing fear and doubt, we can turn to God in prayer. Before we, we dive into our scripture, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. <clears throat> uh, dear Heavenly Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to join us this morning as we open your word, as we look into your truths. We pray for your guidance and for your pricking of our hearts where needed as we learn these truths from your word. Thank you for the freedom and the opportunity to open your word in this place with this body of believers. In Jesus' name, amen. So three points this morning. The first is preparation and panic. And we're in Genesis 32. We'll be reading from, I'll be reading verses 1 to 8. This is what God's word says. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir in the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. And now I am sending this message to you, my Lord, that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So this first half of verse 1 takes us back to the last verse of chapter 31. You know, after kissing his grandchildren and daughters goodbye, Laban leaves and returns home. And now Jacob also goes on his way, continuing his journey to, Jake, to Canaan. So as he goes on his way, he has this encounter with the angels of God. You know, this reminds us of when Jacob first left Canaan to escape his brother's wrath. And if you remember, Jacob dreamt of a stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending it. God spoke to him and promised to provide for him, promised to protect him, and to bring him back to the promised land. And Jacob promised that if God kept his promises to him, that he would be, that he would be Jacob's God. He named the place Bethel, and that encouraged him as he left his homeland for Haran. This second angelic encounter is a parallel event to Bethel, that it will also encourage Jacob today as he now returns home. The two angelic encounters, one as he left Canaan and the other as he returned, suggest that the angels of God accompanied Jacob during his time outside the promised land. Although he was outside the land of promise, he was not outside the hand of promise. So when he sees the angels, he calls the area the camp of God. He names it Mahanaim, which means two camps. 
And Jacob gets positive encouragement in two ways. One, the angels of God were soldiers there to protect Jacob's camp as he entered the promised land. And two, it encourages Jacob to try to reconcile with his brother. That he could no longer ignore his conscience and his guilt about stealing the, stealing the blessing. Where Jacob is going to Canaan is not geographically close to where Esau is living, but spiritually speaking, in order to get to where God wanted him to be, he first had to be reconciled to his brother. So with that reconciliation in mind, he sends messengers to Esau, who was living in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. And describing Esau in this way would remind the first hearers of the three tensions between the two. Their birth, their birthright, and then the blessing. You know, in wanting to reconcile, Jacob's spiritual maturity is taking two steps forward here. He also gives the servants very specific instructions about what to say to Esau. They to call him my Lord. They to refer to Jacob as his servant. So he may have been pouring on the flattery, but this, this was also the usual language of courtesy here. So they to let Esau know that Jacob has been away from the land of Canaan. He's been with Laban this whole time. No, he, he hasn't been dodging him. Okay? He's been literally out of town for the past 20 years. This is the first time that he's returned to his homeland. You know, they're also supposed to share with Esau the assets that he's acquired in Haran. You know, he wants Esau to know that he's not back to take anything away from him because he has plenty. You know, he also may have been wanting Esau to believe that Jacob was willing to share his blessings with him. And in Hebrew, the possessions are singular, which suggests that he wanted to arouse Esau's interest without letting him know exactly how much God had blessed him. Lastly, we see Jacob's motivation for sending this message to him. It was so he may find favor in Esau's eyes. He's appealing to Esau's generosity, to his goodwill, so that the rift between them can be repaired. You know, he wants him to know that his intentions are peaceable. But we see that his plan seems to backfire. As the messengers return, telling him that they went to Esau, and now he's on his way back. He's on his way to Jacob with 400 men. And Jacob begins to panic for a couple reasons. One, the messengers don't say that Esau spoke to them or not. You know, he's just on his way. Second, Jacob would have considered the 400 men an army of sorts coming to wage war with him. In Genesis 14, Abraham took 318 men to attack the five kings in order to rescue Lot. In 1 Samuel, 400 men was a standard number of militia and was a number of fighting men that accompanied David as he was running from King Saul. And then Jacob would have been reminded of Laban, who recently chased him down with his men in the last chapter. <clears throat> this news puts great Jacob in great fear and distress as he believes that Esau is coming to make good on the threat to kill him. You know, I'm reminded of that Geico commercial when you're in a scary movie, you make bad decisions. You know, it's what you do. When you are fearful and in distress, you don't think straight. And you make bad decisions because it's what you do. What Jacob does is panics, and he divides his camp into two groups, along with the flocks and herds and camels. He thinks that when Esau comes and attacks one of the groups, the other group will be able to escape and be saved. But he's not thinking straight because of fear 
doubt and anxiety. And we see this in a number of ways. One, God just sent an angel army to Jacob to encourage him and to protect him. Two, if Esau was intent on killing his family, why did he let the messengers go? And three, wouldn't it be better to have all the available fighting men together as one group? Again, we see some spiritual maturity taking one step backwards as he feels he's got to take matters into his own hands again. Then almost as quickly as the panic sets, Father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers of my children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper. It will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. We see our big idea here. You know, when we're experiencing fear and doubt, we can turn to God in prayer. And that's what Jacob does here. Now, this is his first recorded prayer. And he prays with humility, reminding God of his covenant, command, and promise to him. And he prays for deliverance from his enemies because of God's promises to him. His prayer is a model for us as he prays what I call the Acts prayer. And Acts stands for, Acts stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. First we see adoration as he prays to, God, to the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Baldwin says by invoking God's name, he was consciously calling to mind what God himself had done and making himself known to his family. If you remember the last time he invoked the name of God, he did it with a lie. Because he was in the middle of deceiving his father and stealing the blessing. Yeah, so the last time he invoked the name of God, it was with a lie, as he was in the middle of deceiving his father and stealing the blessing. You know, invoking God's name put his need squarely in the saving purpose of God outlined in the covenant. He also reminded God of his obedience, as he was commanded by God to return to Canaan, and that he promised to prosper him. Second, we see confession, as he admits he is unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that God has shown him. This is his first admission of guilt for his sin, his failures, and his deceptions. 
No, he realizes that even though he is flawed, God has shown him kindness and has been faithful to the covenant promises made to him. Third, we see thanksgiving. Now, when Jacob left Canaan, he only had a staff, and now he's become two camps. I believe he's referring back to the angel camp and to his camp. God has prospered him with cattle, donkeys, sheep, and goats, and male and female servants. He left with nothing and came back with an abundance, all supplied by God, and he thanks God for it. And finally, we see supplication. He petitions God for salvation from Esau's hand. He was afraid Esau was going to attack him, his wives and his sons. You know, we again see spiritual maturity as he's worried and concerned about someone more than just himself. And lastly, again, Jacob reminds God of his promises to him, that he would prosper him, that his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore, which can't be counted. Jacob realizes that if he and his family are killed by Esau, that his descendants would not become as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Griffith Thomas says, Jacob's spiritual life comes out now after all those years in Haran. And though there is much to seek, we can see the clear marks of the work of God directing, deepening, and purifying his soul. You know, Jacob prayed believing that because God was the one who made the promises to him, that he was the only one who could fulfill them. But we also see desperation in his prayer. But at this moment, Jacob's faith was weak. He has not yet acknowledged that God is, is his God, just the God of his fathers. He's like the father in Mark 9, whose son was possessed by an impure spirit. There Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. And the father replies, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Jacob had knowledge of God's ways and character, but because he didn't have that personal relationship with God yet, like his fathers had, he prays with desperation instead of total confidence. And again, we see this in a couple of ways. One, God commanded Jacob to return. Why would he not protect him in his, in his obedience? Two, God cared for him for the past 20 years. Why would he stop now? And three, Jacob was part of God's eternal purposes for the world. You know, would God's purposes now fail because of one man's anger? While the prayer of desperation is still a prayer, a prayer of total confidence in God's abilities and will is better. When we are experiencing fear, worry, and doubt and unbelief, it is as important for us as it was for Jacob that we turn to God in prayer. That we pray with confidence because of his promises to us. That we can use the same acts model that Jacob used, which brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card which is to pray with confidence using the model of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Our third point this morning is plot and placate. And that's found in verses 13 to 21. Again, follow along as I read those verses. He spent the night there. And for what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys 
and ten male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and he said to his servants, go ahead of me, keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do they that belong to, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are gifts sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought I will pacify him with these gifts that I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. So after Jacob prayed and he spent the night in the camp, he, you know, he must have been plotting overnight because when he wakes up, he's got a plan. He's just prayed to God for deliverance. You know, we can assume that God's angel army is still there with him, but he doesn't fully trust God to protect him. You know, he didn't need to be worried, anxious, and upset because God had promised to take care of him. But Jacob takes matters into his own hands. He comes up with a plan to placate Esau into forgiveness and reconciliation. His plan was to gift, or really bribe Esau, with these 550 animals. This gift was larger than towns would have had to pay in tribute to foreign kings. It would have really set up Esau well to start and maintain his own flock and herd. And the gift was made more valuable due to the females and the young included, which would provide ongoing growth. So now this may have been an attempt by Jacob to return the blessing to Esau, or at least restore the benefits of the blessing without disowning his rightful place. Jacob may have thought that forgiveness would only come by giving back what he had taken, but he seems to be forgetting that his blessing came as a result of God's sovereignty. So he separates animals into five different herds, puts each herd in the care of his servants. He then had the servants go ahead of him, leaving space between each herd, effectively staggering them. Jacob also instructed the lead servants to tell Esau when he met him that these animals belong to your servant Jacob and they are a gift from Jacob to my Lord Esau. Now we wonder about those terms. He's mentioned it a couple times, calling Esau his Lord, calling himself a servant. Kind of makes us wonder what God thought. But the servant was also to make sure that Esau knew that Jacob was on his way behind them coming to meet his brother. Each servant leading each herd was to say the same thing. That they were highlighting, supposed to highlight the fact that Jacob was coming behind them. Then we're told the reason why Jacob was giving all these animals to Esau. is to pacify him in order that Esau would receive him. The Hebrew word for pacify literally means cover his face. The connotation is to make atonement that brings about Reconciliation. Matthew says the word gift or offering, atonement and accepted, implies that Jacob makes peace with God by reconciling with Esau. Jacob wants to cover Esau's face so he can't see Jacob's shame for what he's done to him. He wants to wipe out the anger from Esau's face. You know, he's also hoping that Esau would receive him, which literally means that Esau will lift up his face. 
in forgiveness and show him favor. But really, Jacob seemingly is trying to blind Esau with gifts so he forgets what he's done to him. And so he wouldn't be mad at him anymore. You know, Jacob has the right heart as he wants to be reconciled to his brother. But instead of trusting God to work it out, he takes matters into his own hands, trying to bribe his brother into forgiveness and reconciliation. Lastly, we're told that the gifts went ahead, but Jacob spent the night alone in the camp. That's an important lesson to be learned at this point. <clears throat> when our faith is overwhelmed by fear, we plot, we scheme, and we trust in our own strength. When our faith is stronger than our fears, we will live out Psalm 112, 6-7, which says this, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. When we walk in faith, we do not need to fear the enemy. We know that the, the grace of God, not bribery, is the only thing that can take away our guilt. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. We should pray that God will keep us from our own plotting and scheming and help us to be confident in his plans and purposes for us. And that he will protect us from whatever danger, physical or spiritual, that befalls us. That brings us to our second next step on the back of your communication card which is to trust in the Lord and be confident in his plans and purposes for me. In conclusion, I want to speak to spiritual maturity, Jacob's and ours. You know, we didn't see a whole lot of spiritual maturity in Jacob and Haran, but bit by bit, as God has brought him back from Canaan, or back to Canaan, we have seen glimpses of the man that will become Israel and the father of the Jewish nation. You know, our spiritual growth and maturity is a lot of times a process. It's a series of ups and downs, taking two steps forward and one step back. And these steps backward can be brought on by fear, worry, and anxiety. When those times come, we tend to shy away from God's word and prayer. But we can overcome them by making it a habit of daily being in God's word, daily prayer, and memorizing scripture. We mature spiritually when we know that Satan wants to keep us away from God's word, but that we trust in God's strength to defend us. And we still continue to grow. And that brings me to the 2023 Spiritual Life Journal. So I wanted to introduce the theme this morning and give us a challenge for the new year. Our theme this, for 2023 is more like Jesus. We want to become more like Jesus in prayer, in service, in relationships, in fellowship, etc. And you're going to hear more about those in the next month. But I want to challenge us with this today. We want to be more like Jesus in the Word. Jesus knew his scripture. At age 12, he was able to discuss it in the synagogue with the adult teachers of the law. In the Spiritual Life Journal, we have a section called Daily Bible Reading, which gives us a reading for every day of the year starting on January 1st. <clears throat> I'd like to challenge every one of us to read through the Bible together in the new year, following this chart. And as we read this, we can ask ourselves the question, 
Where do I see Jesus in what I'm reading? This would allow us all to be on the same page as we do this together. And I'm hoping that will spark conversations about what we are reading with others and how it's impacting our lives. Doing this as a body of believers will help us to be more like Jesus, knowing God's word, and hide in our hearts, which will continue us on the road to spiritual maturity. That brings us to our last next step, which is to accept the challenge to read through the Bible in a year together with my church family. As the praise team comes and leads in a final song, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you all honor, glory, and praise for who you are and for what you've done for us. Thank you for this time of studying your word, and thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand and discern the truths in it. Help us to pray with confidence, knowing that your promises are true. Help us to trust in you and to be confident in your plans and purposes for us. And as we anticipate and live out our faith in the new year, Help us to accept the challenge to read through your word together, growing together to be more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?